crucial appointment or missed a crucial appointment? Let's be honest. (laughs) You know, that type of appointment where to be on time is questionable, to be late is unacceptable, and to miss it, well, that's unforgivable. I've been there. I remember it was my freshman year of college, my first semester, I was studying for a chemistry exam. The final was going to be taking place at 2 p.m. And you know, I had a solid A going into this final, so I just sat there and thought to myself, eh, we'll just breeze through about 45 minutes of study, and ah, you know, here's a couple of foggy concepts, and I'll, I'll be fine. Well, as I'm going through the materials, I happened upon the sheet where the professor told us where the room and location of the final was. So I pull out that and give it a good look. And it's about noon. I'm looking for the room number, and I notice a spot on the sheet that says time. The final was not at 2. It was at 11. I started freaking out. I jumped into my car. I may or may not have broke certain rules and regulations on the road. I probably parked in a spot where you were supposed to pay a toll and didn't pay that. I think I blew past a couple of friends and didn't say hi to them. I definitely showed up to the class as the last person was leaving. Some appointments that we miss have certain consequences. Now, Certainly with this one, it wasn't life and death. I would be okay. But it did have a big fat D minus attached to it. This final was worth 40% of the grade. And so my consequence was I had to repeat chemistry one again. Boring, right? But other things certainly have much more severe consequences. Forget to show up to work a couple of times you might lose a job. Forget to show up to your wedding day. You might lose a spouse. Miss the Lord's return. Now we're talking about eternal consequences. Some appointments are so important. In fact, this is the appointment of all appointments. You might think of biblical prophecy and say to yourself, eh, it's no big deal. I hear statements all the time, like the end's near, and you have that crazy guy that's frothing at the mouth, screaming in the streets with the big cardboard sign. Eh, he's screaming every day, and tomorrow comes, and the next day, and the next day. Obviously, the end has not come. And you start tuning out a message that is literally all over the Bible. It's kind of like what we do with our alarm clocks. You know, on my less disciplined days, uh, my alarm clock goes off at 5 a.m. and I look at it and I say, you know what, that extra nine minutes of sleep would be great. And I hit snooze. And you hit it two times, three times, four. But eventually, one time you hit that snooze button and then you wake up in a panic because the time has come where you are now late. What if we hit snooze on the Lord's return? What if he found us in a state of unreadiness? Well, that's the question that Paul's going to ask this morning in 1 Thessalonians 5. So if you would, open your Bibles there. 
Uh, You can turn your Bibles, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, and you can turn that to page 987. While you're looking, a couple of quotes. Warren Wearsby describes the purpose of biblical prophecy. He says, Biblical prophecy is not a toy to play with, but a tool to build with. Sam Gordon adds, The end times should cause us to reshuffle our priorities in the present times, helping us set our personal agenda so that we will live a radical gospel before needy men and women. Now notice there in verse 2, as you open up your Bible, he says that you yourselves are fully aware. You could also translate fully aware as you know very well. With biblical prophecy, it's very unhelpful to fixate upon the things that we don't know. But it's very helpful to fixate on the things that we do. In fact, that's what Paul's doing here this morning. He's reminding this church, and by extension us, of four very important truths that we must know very well about Judgment Day. So the first, he says that we know that the end is coming. Look at verses 1-3. through three. He says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And when you think of the day of the Lord, I want you to think about this. In life, there are good days. You want to know a good day? when Katie was walking down the aisle to meet me. Good day. When Alexia, Zach, and Isaac were born. Good day. But there's also bad days. The day my grandfather breathed his last breath was a bad day. The day of the Lord will be like, unlike any day that has ever occurred. It will be terrible. In fact, we can't even really think of it as a 24-hour calendar day. It's more of a period. You see, this phrase is used many times in the Old Testament. It's describing an event where God shows up on the scene and he does business, so to speak. Uh, The minor prophets talk about it, many of them. The major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And when they're talking about it, it often is used to describe God's judgment on the pagan nations surrounding Israel. These periods have happened multiple times, these days of the Lord. But all of these little days will pale in comparison to the big day. What do we see about this big day in these verses? Well, a couple of things. If you begin looking at verse 2, it says it will come like a thief in the night. It will come suddenly. Let me ask you a question. Why do you lock your door at night? Is it because you're afraid that the wind's going to blow and open your door? Or that those varmints like raccoons will come into your house and eat all of your food? I don't think so. I think we lock our door because that is the time, the darkness of night, that thieves break into homes while we are sleeping. In fact, thieves don't often send postcards in the mail to tell you that they're coming, do they? Can you just imagine it? 
Dear Mr. So-and-so, would you be so kind as to plan a vacation on the evening of May 5th? I would very much like to come to your home and steal your precious things. Sincerely, Mr. Thief. Now, the day of the Lord will be sudden. It will come without advanced notice. Paul says in verse 3 that people will be saying peace and security. It will come while humanity is prospering, while science is advancing. People might have set foot on Mars. We might have discovered cures for medical diseases that we never thought we would possibly discover cures for. It will happen during the normal course of life. Kids going to school, husbands and wives running errands, you're turning in that big job proposal, you're about to get married, and then suddenly, Suddenly, Jesus comes, and the day of the Lord begins. Matthew 24, verses 37 and 38. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and then destruction. Jesus taught that no one knows the day or the hour when this will happen. One commentator has said this, if there is one thing certain about the timing of the Lord's return, it is this, that we cannot be certain about the timing. But we can be certain that it will happen and that it will be sudden. You notice another principle. It will bring great destruction. If you ever wonder, what is this day of the Lord going to be like? Read in the book of Revelation. Go to chapter 6, make your way through chapter 19. And as you're reading through that, you'll see that Jesus opens up seven scrolls that unleash seven judgments upon the earth. And that leads into seven trumpets that declare seven judgments, which leads into then seven bowls of God pouring out his wrath upon the earth. God's wrath. That's what this day is about. I want to talk to you a little bit about the wrath of God. See, when we hear that word wrath, we often think of it in terms of some kind of violent, explosive, disproportionate to the crime type of anger, like that crime of passion where a husband discovers infidelity and he kills his spouse. But that's not what we're talking about here. God's wrath is not some blind, drunken act of fury. It always is rightly proportionate to the crime. What is the crime? It's a measured response to sinfulness. Sin, sinfulness, it's not just mistakes that we make here and there. It's not a list of things that we've done wrong, and as long as we are on the positive side of the ledger, we'll be fine with God. No, sinfulness at its core is rejecting God. That is fundamentally what it is. It's a state of being. It's an active or passive decision to reject God with the entirety of your life. Romans 1 describes this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Ungodliness just simply means doing life without God. 
That's what it means. Unrighteousness means that you're doing life apart from God's moral and righteous standard. For what can be known about God is plain. His invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. Now, I don't want to stop, uh, soften this next statement. God intensely hates sinfulness. He intensely hates sinfulness. He hates what sinfulness has produced. He hates lying, gossip, sexual immorality, cheating, stealing, violence, drunkenness, hatred, jealousy. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, I've never made an active decision in my life to say that I don't want to do God's things or that I'm going to do something against him. That's not me. But passive rejection is just as bad as active rejection. Just imagine the father saying to his child, I know that I've had nothing to do with you your whole life, but at least I didn't beat you. Would that make that child feel any less betrayed? It wouldn't. And you think to yourself, well, who would do that to such a precious thing like a child? Well, God is infinitely more valuable than anything. So now you must multiply your sinfulness by infinity. And that is why the day of the Lord will bring great destruction. You see, here's the thing, though, with God. God is exceptionally patient, kind, good, and loving. In spite of the offense that we have committed against him, he still patiently waits so that people might be made right before him. Some Christians have asked, why doesn't Jesus just return today and just set everything right? Well, Peter explains this, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But see that next part. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Then there will be this seven-year period of travail called the tribulation. It's described in the Bible. There will be a worldwide famine, pandemics, worldwide natural disasters, economic disaster, wars, meteor showers, demonic oppression. God is patient, but his patience has its limits. You'll also see in verse 3 that if you are caught on this earth when this day begins, there will be no escape. Now, why there in verse 3 does Paul use the analogy of pregnancy to describe the inescapable nature of this day? Why does he do that? I've heard from some reliable female sources uh, that pregnancy is kind of an inescapable event when it starts coming on. Can you imagine the situation? Here you have a wife, and it's a Sunday afternoon, and she casually comes into the room and says, Honey, it's time to go to the hospital. The baby's coming. And you might have a husband who is enthralled in the Patriots game. I mean, it's really close. And he looks back at her and he says, You know, honey, um, the game's on. Can we just have this wait for just a minute? Now, she would probably come back to him and say in no uncertain terms, right? Right? 
sweetheart, you will either go and get the car and bring it around and get your butt up, or I am going to have the baby right here. I actually know some friends that didn't make it to the hospital. They had the baby in the car. Pregnancy is inescapable in the same way if we're found here on the earth when this period of tribulation begins, it will be inescapable. The pains of God's wrath will come and we will go through the entirety of it. So what hope is there? Our hope is found in finding escape before the day begins. Don't be found on the earth when the day begins. Escape before the day begins is what Paul says. And the only way that we will find escape is in Jesus. You see, the second thing that we can know is this. We can know that if we are in Christ, we will avoid that day. Look at verses 4 and 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. When you look at the scriptures, there are ever only two identities described of people. We like to think of identities in all kinds of different categories, but the Bible breaks it down to two. Children of darkness and children of light. Those who have not trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and those who have found rescue in Christ for the salvation of their soul. Paul makes this great divide between different metaphors. There's sleepers and awake. There's children of darkness and children of light. There's drunken individuals and sober individuals. There's they and then there's you and we. So your identity is determined by your response to Jesus. If you look at a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says to the church that your identity before Christ was children of wrath. Look there at the end. It's as if to say that before we knew Jesus, before he came in and redeemed our souls, we were standing in the pathway of God's coming wrath and there was nothing that we could do to turn to the left or to the right. We were fixated in our position. But there's really good news, y'all. Really good news. In Jesus, you can have your spiritual DNA radically changed. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How are we redeemed and forgiven in Christ? Well, it's in Christ. That phrase is very important. Before we knew Christ, we were unable to live the perfect life that God demanded of us. But in Christ, Christ lived the life you couldn't live. God looks at your life and he accredits the righteousness of Christ to your life. Before we knew Christ, we couldn't do anything to accomplish or satisfy God for our sinfulness. But Christ willingly laid down his life on the cross. And the Bible says that he bore the weight of our sins upon himself. So that in Christ, God looks at your sinfulness and he says, paid in full. Without Christ, we are eternally ruined. We can't escape that big day called death. 
but Christ rose again from the dead. Christ defeated death's dominion over this earth. And in Christ, you will be raised new as well. You see, to be in Christ means to be fundamentally changed all the way down to your spiritual DNA. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You can't be made right with God apart from Christ. You can't be made right with God because you're filling a seat right now. You can't be made right with God by dropping a couple of words out of your vocabulary. You can't be made right with God by yelling at your kids a little less. You can't be made right with God by giving to the, the, the hot charity of the hour. The only way that you can be made right with God is to place your faith in his son, Jesus. Have you done that? Have you trusted in Christ as your way of escape? If there's one thing that I could do for every person in this world, it would be to introduce them to this relationship with Christ. I would do anything for you to come to know Jesus. There's nothing more important in this life than this decision. And when you make it, God promises to come in and radically change you. Now what of the Christian who doesn't really look like a Christian? I've thought about this, and I think that there is something going on with their identity. They don't know who they are. I mean, if you're in this life, if you believe that you're a walrus, for example, I don't think you're going to live a very productive life. It's likely that you'll probably die of hypothermia. In the same way, when a Christian doesn't know who they are in Christ, and when they don't align their life with their identity, There's a lot of confusion that occurs. So Paul is going to say in the next section, he's going to tell us that we know how we should live, and if you're not living the way you should, then you're asleep. Look at those verses with me, verse 6 through 8. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I've heard it said that the world can be roughly divided into three groups of people. The few who make things happen, the many who watch things happen, and the vast majority who have no idea what is happening. It's true. So how do we live as a Christian like the few who make things happen? That's how I want to live. Paul gives us three principles. First, he talks about staying spiritually awake to the things of God. That's that first part of verse 6. How does a person fall asleep to the things of God? I think it goes something like this. You're working a demanding full-time job. You have home responsibilities, hobbies, vacations, friends, exercise, TV, Facebook, television, Twitter, and even too many church activities. 
And suddenly, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I don't have time to invest in a relationship with Christ, to be discipled, to regularly be involved in corporate worship on a Sunday morning. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever felt like spiritually your eyes were going droopy and you were falling asleep? I have. Days, weeks, months, even years. And I'm asking myself the question, why is it that it seems like I'm no longer connecting with Christ like I had before? You're asleep. Jesus talks about this in the book of Revelation. What if he finds you asleep? What if your heart is elsewhere? He's talking to the church of Ephesus. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Paul is saying here in Thessalonians, wake up. Don't let your eyelids drop. How do you stay committed to your first love? It involves all kinds of intentional decisions. You have to choose to stay current with Christ. You have to choose not to give your heart over to other things. Otherwise, it's lights out. Notice, too, that Paul says in verse 7, um, avoid those things that are morally corrupting. This is what he's getting at. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. So he's saying here that low standards can turn then into loose morality. One moment your eyes are getting droopy to the things of God and the next you find yourself out carousing with the sleepwalkers. I don't think that the stress here is merely on the idea of getting drunk, but it has something more to do with the self-control and alertness that should mark a soldier who is actively on duty. Uh, Paul uses a similar metaphor in 2 Timothy 2.4. Now, no soldier gets entangled into civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. How do we avoid corrupting things? Well, let's be honest. Um, most of us don't like to say, I get tempted. I don't like to talk about that. I, I like to think that I can make things happen, and if I am tempted, I'll, I'll fight that. That's not a big deal. But, the thing that the scripture says reoccurringly is that you shouldn't feel guilty over the fact that you get tempted. Everybody gets tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to sin. It's a sin to cave to the temptation. In uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul tells us this when it comes to temptation. Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. So when you are being tempted or you're struggling with them, there are two things that are very important to remember to stay away from temptation. You need to think about the situations that tempt you, and you also need to think about the people who tempt you. If you think about what tempts you, when it tempts you, where it tempts you, who tempts you, and then you avoid those situations, 
you tend to do much better in this arena. But let's be honest, sometimes we'll be doing those things, and in spite of it, we will be tempted. What do you do then? Get out! Don't walk out of the room, run! That's what the Bible says. It doesn't say fight it, it says flee it. That's how the Christian avoids temptation. And each and every time that we're avoiding these temptations, we're told to go and pursue something good instead. Like faith, love, and hope. And that's the third thing we see, put on faith, love, and hope. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I've often found that when Christians first start walking with Christ, that they get them a little sheet of paper, maybe up here, and they just start listing all the sins that they're struggling with in their life. And then they go to church on Sunday morning, and the preacher starts preaching, and they learn about new sins that they need to add to the list. And their goal is to check off those sinful tendencies as they find themselves overcoming them. But what happens when there's that sinful habit that you can't check off the list? Instead of being able to check it off, in fact, you circle it because it's a reoccurring problem and you keep looking at it and looking at it and in fact, it's not helping you to get any better with the problem, it's making it worse. This is why Paul says, put on. It's not enough to put off. God's Spirit is involved in this work of renovating your heart. And as He does this, He gives you the power to live the Christian life so that if you're struggling with things like arrogance, for example, when I was first walking with Christ, I could not get past things like arrogance and selfishness. And God's Holy Spirit renovates and He replaces arrogance with humility and hatred with that supernatural virtue that we all want, love. In Christ, we must continually strive to wake up every day and put on those virtues, faith, love, and hope. Paul says that this will be an armor to you. And let me just tell you, if you've gotten into this Christian life and you say, oh, this is just an easy path and there's no big problems, you entered into a battle a battle, a spiritual battle. And we need to put on these armors. So how do these things shield us? Well, notice that faith and love are the breastplate. They cover your heart. Hope is the helmet. It covers your mind. Faith shields you against not trusting God. God is infinitely worthy of your trust. And so one of the biggest temptations in this life is to distrust God. And when we start distrusting God, we stop trusting God with our life, and then we make a big mess. Love 
and faith work together. Faith acts like the hard surface of the breastplate. So Roman armor would have that hard surface, but then underneath there would be a soft interior. It was used to clothe the body and to keep it warm. So on this breastplate, the hard exterior is faith, confidence in God. The soft interior is love or devotion to God. Whoever is supreme, the supreme focus of your love is going to control what you do, what you think, what you say. And they will end up occupying the place of God in your life. There's only one person who deserves that place of prominence. Jesus. Jesus gets the first place. What of hope? One author has said that hope is hearing the melody of the future. Faith is to dance to it. So hope protects the mind and it produces clear thinking. Hope of salvation, that certainty that if you were to breathe your last breath today, you would moments, harrowly, in an instant, be with Jesus in heaven. That idea that if Jesus were to return, that you are one of his blood-bought own and he will call you to himself and you will not have to go through tribulation. That's hope. I appreciate these words. When faith is weak, Love is cold. When love is cold, hope is lost. When faith is strong, love is zealous. When love is zealous, hope is firm. If you have faith, love, and hope in your life, that is what identifies you as a card-carrying Christian. It's what separates you from that average Joe Blow who's just walking through the shopping mall. These virtues. So we know that the end is coming. We know who we are if we are in Christ. We know how we ought to live. But how do we know that all these things will come to pass? Well, fourthly, we see we know what God has destined for us. Look at verses 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Now look there at that first phrase, that word destiny, or destined. Um, Destiny means a set appointment. It's a fixed point in time. It's final. I don't know if you're a planner or not. Anybody a planner? Good at planning? You can raise your hands. You can feel comfortable. Planning. I hated planning when I first started doing it. Hated it. But having said that, planning is so important, and I found it to be such a good thing that I do it reoccurringly. But I'll tell you what. For some reason, plans just don't always go the way that I want them to. It's wise to plan, but they're not certain. Not so with God. When God plans, we call it destiny. They are a certain appointment. Here are three statements that you can be sure of. God knows where you came from. God knows where you are right now. God knows where you will end up. So what is the destiny of someone who knows Jesus is Lord and Savior? Well, first, we are not destined for wrath. And I don't think this is a reference to eternal damnation like we talked about, but to that seven-year period of tribulation. But both are true. You're not destined for that. 
What are we destined for? To receive salvation. Philippians 1 verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. In Christ, God changed your spiritual DNA, which changed your destiny. God initiated your salvation at the cross. He is presently working it out through his Holy Spirit. And then when he returns, when Jesus returns, he will bring it to completion. That is the Christian hope. And when he brings it to completion, it will be finished eternally. You will be made perfect, glorified. I want to ask you to do something with me. I want you to just put your heads down and close your eyes and think what we've learned from the word of God this morning. In verse 11, Paul ends and he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Encouragement has to do with the fact that there is no greater hope than what we've just talked about this morning. There is no greater hope than knowing that eternally you can be secure in Jesus. To build up is another part of encouragement. And it asks the question, how then should we live? We need to be asking that as we interact with the Word of God. You see, I believe that in preaching, it's very important to give people pathways to faithfulness. Sometimes when we're walking in this life, we're asking ourselves, how do I be faithful to God? I want to give you a pathway to that. That's why we talk about application a lot. Think of this. If Jesus were to return today, how would he find you? Are you spiritually asleep? Have you been intoxicated by the world? Are you selling him shorts? Are you ready to meet him today? God is saying something to you this morning. Keep your eyes open. Wake up. Avoid temptation. Put on faith, love, and hope. Maybe as you hear this, you say, I don't know where my identity is. Remember, there are ever only two identities. Paul says, light and darkness, sleeping and awake, night and day, us and them, wrath and salvation. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Your choice is either between ruin and rescue, destruction or deliverance. You don't have to face God's wrath. Christ is your way of escape. I want you to think about this long and hard. See, we've entitled this series, While You Are Waiting, but there will come a time where we won't be waiting anymore. If Jesus were to come today, and he may, would you be ready? All eternity rests on how you answer this simple question. And if you'd like to trust Christ as your Savior, do so now. In fact, I'll lead us in a little prayer and you can just pray this along with me. Lord Jesus, in the best way I know how, I place my faith in you. I trust that your work on the cross, your life, your death, uh, your resurrection are sufficient for my salvation. Lord, I give you my life today. 
Amen. And if you've made that decision of faith this morning, welcome to the family of God. Welcome. He has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You are one of his own. God bless you.